Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host, Vince Peard. Once again, and always, I am joined by my co-host, Tilly Baden. Tilly, my friend, how the devil are you? How have things been since you were last aboard the good ship SWR? Hello, everyone. Well, I don't know what day it is today. I've, I've eaten far too much chocolate over ah. the Easter weekend, and the Easter weekends always throw me. I don't know what day it is or or if I'm coming or going. Um, so, yeah, it's a mystery, to be honest. Harder when um, you work every day, I imagine, as well, Tilly. When you work every it, day, it probably is difficult to know what day it is. It is, yeah. I don't really have a weekend ever, <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> what's a weekend do we even know what a weekend is in social work maybe not when you're doing independent work alongside but never mind I had a good Easter anyway I did see my family and and caught up with some friends as well so that was nice um how's your Easter time been have you had any time uh yeah 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 I have I have I mean what what I tend to do is I've got a really bad habit some people would call me a workaholic When I have free time, I fill it with work. And that's a bad habit of mine. So I say, you know, might be a morning where my wife's taking the kids swimming or something like that. So I've got a couple of hours. I never think, oh, that's a couple of hours to myself. I'll watch a film. I'll play a computer game. I'll go see my friends. I'll go for a walk. I'll go on a bike ride. My immediate reaction is always, ah, I can squeeze in a couple of hours of work. And I think I need to address that, Tilly. I mean, I don't want to make it into a big issue, but it's a medium-sized issue. Do you do that, or can you do you at least understand where I'm coming from? That sort of drive to be productive and fill those gaps when you've got them with work, if you can. Yeah, I'm totally the same. I'm yeah. I'm guilty of that. Um, if I've got a four day weekend over Easter, I'm thinking, right, okay, I can probably have two days off, but mm. then I need to do work for two days because that is just dead time otherwise. Yeah. And it's wrong because you yeah. should be taking a break, but I'm I'm so guilty of it. And I know that I would rather have a little bit of extra income and then be able to do things like spend money on the horses tattoos and holidays and and things rather than just like sit there watching Netflix or or something it's a running joke in my team at work they're always like what are you doing this weekend oh don't ask Tilly because she'll be working um and yeah it is I wouldn't say it's a problem because I don't mind doing it and I love my job but I could see it could become a problem And, and and I'm with you on that one I'm with you on that one Tilly and um have you ever heard of compassionate counselling or compassion therapy? Or have you ever heard of the therapist Paul Gilbert? I haven't. No. Tell me more. Well, allow me to, to tell me more. Tell me more. Was it love at first? But we're going to have got into a bit of grease there, you know. <laughs> Summer night. I love that. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll be Danny. You can be Sandy. Um, well, Sandy, I, I will tell you more. Um, basically, uh, compassion therapy essentially boils down to human beings have three key motivators which kind of impact on one another. Imagine it is, is three circles on either end of a triangle. One is drive, one is soothe, and one is fear. Now, what's meant to happen if you have a you know healthy, adaptive coping mechanism and approach life in a sort of 
positive way and healthy way is those three aspects of your psyche are meant to interact with each other. So fears can lead you to sometimes soothe, but can also drive. So say, for example, we've talked about you working weekends. A reason for you to be driven to work weekends may be fear. I'm not analyzing you here, Tilly, but it could be fear of not having enough money to fund your lifestyle, to pay your rent, to feed your horses, whatever. And that could be the same for everybody. As well as that, fear can drive us to do many things. You know, the fear of failure can drive us to success, the fear of not being accepted by our peers or parents or colleagues or lovers or partners can drive us forward. That's fine. What some people can do, Tilly, and again, I'm not going to say this is me and you, but between me and you, it could be me and you. Some people only operate in two sides of that compassion triangle, where what they do is they rely a lot on drive to motivate them. So there's a lot of drive. I want to be better. I want to do more. As we were saying there, I want to fill those hours I've got with work because I don't feel good otherwise. And drive and fear can link to each other quite well because the fear of failure, the fear of not having money, the fear of looking bad in people's eyes, the fear of not meeting your own egotistical needs is a good driver. What happens though is if we live our life either constantly in the fear sphere or constantly in the drive sphere or oscillate between the two, fear drives us forward, but then we drive too far and then we get fear because we're anxious and worried and we'll potentially burn out. Those two things, living in those two mindsets of being driven to succeed all the time by fear of drive factors are motivating and not taking the time out to soothe is a one-way ticket to burnout. Now, that one-way ticket might not get us there tomorrow, might not even get us there this week, this month, or this year. But if you constantly rely on drive and fear as your key motivators and live within those two zones for too much, you'll end up burnout, you'll end up sick, you'll end up unwell or worse. What you have to do is you have to consciously take yourself out of those and soothe yourself. You have to take time off from both fear and drive. In doing so, not only will you be happier and healthier and more stable in your life, but you will have more resources to avoid fear and also to fuel your drive. Does that kind of make sense how I've explained it? Yeah, definitely. Um, I should set myself some target. Oh, hang on. Maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> As we say straight away, set myself some targets to soothe myself, um, driving myself to soothe. Um, yeah, maybe I'll set myself a challenge of watching like a meaningless Netflix show or something. And we can you can check in with me next weekend to see how that goes. And And, and that's the key. That's what you have to do. You have to book in time for yourself. So if you think of your diary, Tilly, I know sometimes you don't, your diary perhaps isn't as rigid as my own. <laughs> Definitely uh, not. <laughs> but, if, but if you think of if you think of your diary, I imagine that you perhaps don't conscientiously book specific time out to do a high quality relaxing activity. What I mean by that is of course you'll have downtime, but perhaps you haven't planned it. It's just downtime and you'll fill it with something. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, n- normally doom scrolling through TikTok. Bingo. Yeah. And, and and again, I'm sure I'm, I, I, I'm like that. You're like that. I'm sure many of our listeners are like that. 
The key is to set aside specific time, but ring fence it with an activity, right? I'm going to spend four hours with this friend. I'm going to spend an afternoon going for a walk in my local area, going down my local beach. It doesn't have to cost money. Equally, it could be things that cost money. You could think, right, I'm going to book myself a massage. I'm going to go for a spa day. I'm going to go on a city break. I'm going to leave my work phone at home. I found a lot of sense in this, Tilly. I found a lot of sense in this because for me personally, fear has been a great driver for me. Not really a massive anxious fear of anything, but just the fear of not being a success, not fulfilling my life, not trying to do the best that I could in the various fields that I operate within. But you can't rely on that forever because you don't take time out. So what I'm going to start doing now that I've come across Paul Gilbert, anyone listening who wants to look into this, you as well, Tilly, um, the book that I read was called The Compassionate Mind by Paul Gilbert. So that's a key text. Paul Gilbert's written lots of books, but I've just got into him and his work. And the sort of key one that I've started was Paul Gilbert, The Compassionate Mind. So I'm going to start dedicating some time. I'm going to start taking half a day every Thursday, or maybe ideally a full day every Thursday if I can. But yeah, I'm going to, do you know what? I'm going to aim for a full day every Thursday just for myself because. I can't really use weekends. We're having two kids, to be perfectly honest, Tilly. My weekends are often more difficult than my working days. We're having two kids that constantly fight with each other and demand my attention. So, yeah, I'm going to start doing it, Tilly. And uh, you should too, my friend. You should too. Yeah, I'm going to give it a go. So next week, I'll um, I'll do a review of a Netflix show or something that I've actually yeah. watched. Yeah. That's it. Start taking some time out for yourself. Um, right, moving on from our impromptu counselling session there. Uh, we've had another review in Tilly, my friend, all the way from the US of A. Are you ready for this? I am. So excited. Uh, this review comes from C-A-M-S-W. So I imagine that is a social worker with the initials C-A, who was a master of social work. C-A leaves us five stars and says, totally relatable. And her review is her. Could be a, could be a he. Could be a he. C-A. I am, I'm guessing it's a female, tell you something, because 90% of our listeners are, but I could be wrong. So C-A. And it says... Having worked in child protection in California for over 25 years, I appreciate this podcast because the hosts totally understand the job. There are different terminologies and procedures between UK and US, but the issues, concerns and rewards are the same. I enjoy figuring out the differences. We all struggle with balancing the demands of the job and the desires of a personal life. And I found the podcast reminds me I'm not alone and challenges me in practice and raising my professionalism. What a lovely review from Sia there, Tilly. That's so lovely. Yeah, and it's it's always interesting for us as well to try and pick out the differences between yeah. social work in different countries. Because, I mean, before I started doing the podcast or writing, I, I had a very narrow English view of social work because that's where I've practiced. That's that's how I've learned, and, and we don't really go outside that scope. But, yeah, hearing from different stories from different parts of the world um, from social workers, our colleagues across the globe. It's really exciting. Um, yeah. It feels like we're part of that global community. You know what, Jelly? It's lovely you've said that because I don't say that enough. And it, it is something that my platform, so I've obviously been writing and sort of blogging and podcasting about social work for, for eight years now. And my platform I've renamed to Social Work World because I initially started writing and posting memes and doing podcasts for a British audience. Not, not necessarily targeted that audience, but we are British, Tilly, so obviously, you know, my frame of reference was that. But 
as my content was shared and the platform grew, I started to get into contact with more and more social workers all over the world. And what is beautiful, Tilly, what this has taught me is social work is more or less exactly the same everywhere in the world. It's the same problems, the same issues. We work with the same client base. We mostly do the same things. The stress and struggles, believe me, are very, very similar. The only real differences are how we enact that and how we practice it. Different legislation, there's different rules, different kind of frameworks, but that that basic drive of that social work assessment cycle, intervention, assessment, and review, the difficulties we face and the clientele we face, the service user base, are more or less categorized in the same groups of people who are in need or at risk of significant harm throughout the world. So much similarity between us. It's amazing. It really is. If I was to reflect upon what my platform has given me and what the reach that we've had has given me, the most important thing it's given me is knowing that I'm not alone. Not only am I not alone in my town, my county, my country, my continent, but I'm not alone throughout the world. And that's why I uh, call my platform Social Work World on the Facebook group and Facebook page. I love that. That's just, that warms the soul, that does. That really does. Um, yeah. So hello to all of our international listeners. We, we love you and we're glad that you found us. And thank you ever so much, Sia. You know, honestly, it means it means a, a massive amount to, to me and Tilly to get those reviews. And if anybody else would like their review read out on next week's podcast, simply hop over to Spotify or iTunes or anywhere else where you can leave a review on your podcast feed and we will read it out on next week's show. Well, Tilly, um, I was thinking the other day, I was thinking it has been just over three years since lockdown first came into place in our country, in the UK. It came in in March 2020. So what do you remember from that time, Tilly? What could you remember from this time three years ago when lockdown started? How was it for you? It was a really scary time. Um, it was. We went into lockdown just a couple of days before my birthday and I um, I, I was working in a continuing healthcare team at the time. I was still within my peri social work job. So I'd just been placed um, in a team that was making assessments for continuing healthcare. Um, for our international listeners, that is a, a, a funding stream that um, our National Health Service provides for people with long term disabilities and health conditions um, so that they don't have to pay for their care and it's funded through the NHS. Um, so as soon as COVID sort of hit and we went into lockdown, because everything in social care was such a crisis, um, that was that funding stream, those assessments immediately stopped. So we were redeployed. Um, I ended up working um, in a hotel-based care team where we were supporting people to be discharged from hospital, people were being discharged into hotels um, just to manage the throughput. And we were then supporting them to get back home. Um, and then shortly after then, I got my first manager's job. So it was a very different time in my working life. It was really scary. Um, I can remember being in sort of the hospitals 
just like a week before a couple of days before we were in lockdown and and chatting with the doctors and nursing staff and saying oh is this this scary virus that's coming across to the UK is it going to affect us and people were saying oh no it's just scaremongering it's just like the flu we'll be fine we won't go into lockdown everything will be okay but um I can remember when we first saw on the news those cycles where it had spread over to Italy I think that was probably the first time where I thought wow this is this is actually coming it's not contained just to China anymore it's really spread across the world and seeing those videos and pictures on the news of like empty Italian streets and all these like famous tourist landmarks completely empty it was Mm. like something out of the apocalypse and I'm a bit of a dooms as I've already said on this this podcast but I liked doom scroll and um I had been on a lot on, on social media at the time and I just remember thinking this is this is gonna happen we're going into lockdown like this is like the end of the world so it was a really scary time in both my private and my professional life yeah what was it like for you it's an interesting point you make there about how it just sort of crept up, didn't it? Because there's, you know, the news stories about what was happening in China sort of started to hit the mainstream news around January. And then there was this dithering about, you know, some countries are stopping people from China traveling and checking them, others weren't. And there was talk about this respiratory virus. But, you know, having lived through sort of swine flu fears in sort of, I think that was 2009, and having sort of lived through the bird flu fears a little bit earlier than that. I don't think anybody was really, nobody was predicting it was going to turn out like it was. And then come March, so come three years and about a month ago, that's when it was really ramping up and the the fears sort of started to really come in there. I remember reading some things online that look lockdown is going to happen because it happened in other countries. It had happened in Italy and countries that were kind of, catching the wave before us so i was able i mean i was advising people i was telling my friends and family and people in work look you need to prepare for this and i went to my local costco and stocked up on loads and loads of food and toilet paper so when it did come about in, in, a, in a personal level i was prepared for it touch wood i'm you know still relatively young i'm healthy i've got no underlying health conditions can health conditions or issues neither of my wife or my children so in that sense we 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 felt as prepared for it as we potentially could be but work was a different kettle of fish i was in the process of changing from one job to another and i started a new job on the monday I think we went into lockdown on the Wednesday or Thursday. So I literally started a brand new job on the Monday. And this is, I'm not saying this in a bad way till you know, I love that job. I was there for over a year where I ended up being a manager, but it felt as if we were making it up as we were going along. Usually that's a negative thing, but you see where I'm coming from. Was yours the same? Because I mean, what I mean is we we're making it up as we were going along because we had no, no, no way else of knowing what we were doing. Did you have a similar feeling of sort of doing it all on the fly and catching up to events that were massively outpacing your workforce's ability to keep up with? 
Oh, completely. I mean, just the having the hotel-based care system, that had never been done before. It, it was a disaster. It didn't work at all. And um, people, it was just not good for anyone involved, really. But yeah, I mean, then we were supporting people that usually go to the day centres, having to completely revamp their lives and making sure that they had care in place so that they didn't need to rely on going out and about because up until then our whole ethos is trying to get people out into the community supporting people to be social and preventing loneliness and social isolation in older and disabled adults Um, so then flipping that on its head trying to get these people to be as protected as possible and locking them down and making sure that those with underlying health conditions weren't unnecessarily exposed it was completely uh, well just a time where we just didn't know what was going on and we were just trying to do the best that we could um, working in a completely different way and that and that is where our workforces were very different in terms of the impact that COVID had on the people we supported because working in child protection you're working with children who mercifully were were spared the worst ravages of this virus and you're working with parents of those children mostly. Yes, you know, there's some grandparents via special guardianship and so on. And there's some parents who are, who are older, but the vast majority of people you work with in child protection are children and and people of uh, you know who would have young children. So you're looking the average age is mid-20s, I imagine, of most of the parents you work with. Certainly the vast majority of people are 40 and under. And your workforce was very different because you were dealing with vulnerable clients and people who were at significant risk. So how did you personally and your workplace adapt to those sudden changes that came on around three years ago? Tell you, how did you how did you cope with it all, both you and uh, your workplace at large? Well, I think everyone just did the best that they could in a really strange situation. I think Uh, There was a lot of community spirit generated during those first lockdowns. Um, So people were actively volunteering. They were checking on their neighbours, making sure that they had food packages and they collected their prescription medications. There was a real sense of community that I don't think we'd ever had before. So in some ways that made our jobs easy because we could just be like right mrs smith from number 10 needs a a a care package or um or needs a food package or or some prescriptions picking up and we could then tap into these voluntary organizations and just be like can you go and support her and and they do that so that was a completely different way but I mean, the impact of COVID on our older populations, especially when it started getting into care homes and hospitals, the amount of death that took place during those COVID waves, it was it was horrendous. We had care homes that lost like 80 percent of their residents um, in one go. Wow. That high. uh, sometimes for some of them Jeez. yeah yeah God. and then the impact of the staff as well because people were then getting it getting sick or having to self-isolate and there was massive staff shortages the PPE shortages were horrendous like yeah. our care staff were seen as sort of second rate compared to the people that were working in hospitals um, that was a real noticeable impact 
and, and disparity really between health and social care because those domiciliary carers that go out and support people in their homes or those care home workers that are working within residential and nursing homes they weren't getting the same PPE that was going straight to the people that were working in the hospitals yet they had the same sorts of residents or people that they were supporting um, I think care homes people realized that the older people and people with disabilities there is that real divide between the haves and have-nots in terms of your health and, and disability status and people's attitudes to lockdowns and supporting vulnerable clients I think that that was really highlighted during the start of COVID as well because you have people that were saying well yeah of course older people or, or people with underlying health conditions are going to die that's just just going to mm. happen I mean they're going to die anyway why mm. should the rest of the country or the world be locked down or prevented from doing something to protect our more vulnerable people and you really got that sense certainly working with adult services where we were seeing it on a day-to-day basis we were seeing the, the, the scale of illness and death and then you had the COVID non-believers out there that were setting up picket lines down the street going, COVID's a hoax. Um, how did you feel, just... Terry? How, how did you feel working with care homes that were losing 80% of their residents? And I, and I feel like I feel like that does a disservice to say residents because I, I feel like that almost dehumanises people. So let, I'll rephrase that. How do you feel knowing that 80% of people who were living in certain care homes being cared for, which should should have been the safe, they should have been safer than anywhere else because they had professional measures in place. They had, you know, you could have, you should have been able to, you know, regulate it better. How do you feel knowing the horrific toll that this was having upon people and their loved ones? And yet there were people out there, I'm not going to get into the vaccine debate because that's a different debate, but in terms of those COVID deniers, because there were a lot of them out there who this was fake, it was made up, it was, you know, just a lie, it was caused by 5G. How did you feel hearing that when you were facing the grim reality of what this virus was doing to people on a day-by-day basis? I was incensed by yeah. it all. I just wanted to scream at the world, like, yeah. did you not, do you not realise? I had, like, care home managers ringing me up saying, I've got no staff, they're all yeah. off sick, or I've got my residents dying and I haven't got PPE coming in, or what do I do? I can't even support these people. And hospitals were turning vulnerable residents from care homes away and saying, yeah. look, we're not having you, you're not going to get a ventilator, you're not going to be resuscitated or, or supported in any way, you're just going to have to stay where where you are and if you die you die that was the message that was coming out to 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 people in receipt of social care services shocking isn't and it shocking it, it, it i've literally got goosebumps as we're talking about this because it's a really it was just such an awful time and I, don't, I suppose you don't really think about it that much anymore that's what i was going to get moved on yeah I, I but now i'm talking that. about it yeah. but uh, it's bringing it all back. I Do you remember. think we've forgotten the horrors, Tilly? Do you think? Because you, you look back oh, now, you definitely. remember that time, and because we've gone back to normal, um, essentially, you know, as if nothing's happened. Do you think we've really forgotten about the horrors and how bad it was? Completely. 
I think we've got very selective memories about COVID and lockdown. And mm. I think when it's talked about within the mainstream media, people are saying about, oh, well, lockdown, people got a new hobby or they were baking. Yeah, it's romanticised. It's romanticised. And I, of course it was. And, and actually the reality for people either working in health and social care or for people that were in receipt of those sorts of services had a really different experience and lockdown yeah. was the scariest and worst time of their lives or many didn't even survive it um yeah you know Tilly I've got I've got friends who who look back and when you talk about lockdown they speak about it through from uh, in a mix of frustration about not being able to go to the pub, not being able to get out there and see friends, but also with a, a, a weird sense of nostalgia about how many computer games they played, how many films they played, getting into TikTok, baking sourdough, renovating the homes, their little hobbies, doing quizzes over Zoom. It, it, it is my, my friends, my friends who weren't working in frontline essential jobs, who were able to be on furlough, have saved money from lockdown, and look back at it. Yeah, some some of them are a bit frustrated, but most of them look back and just think, "Oh, wasn't that a jolly good time we had?" It was. It's 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 looked back at with a fond remembrance. If and this is the big if, if they didn't lose anyone at the virus, but I look back at that time and I remember having to strip my clothes off as soon as I got in the front door, run through, put my clothes straight into the wash bin, straight upstairs, shower and disinfect myself for fear that I was bringing this virus back to my family. I remember clients who were coughing and threatened to cough on me. I've heard of colleagues who had clients threatened to spit on them. I remember visiting family homes, not being able to see children, but knowing that there was a, a perpetrator of domestic abuse living in that family home because he had to be in there because the government locked him in there. Uh, but there was refusals to answer the door week after week, day after day, because uh, because coronavirus is used as an excuse. I remember working more hours than I'd ever worked before. I remember significant struggles with IT and getting everything set up. I remember massive issues in relation to trying to work out contact and sort contact for parents whose children were in care. Uh, it's often children who were in care went went weeks and sometimes months, should I say, until contact could be set up again. You had foster carers who were who were particularly vulnerable, who, who who essentially were saying, "Well, I can't allow these children to go and have contact because I'm at significant risk. I'm in, I'm in a protected group." I, I, you know what, Tilly. I don't think about it too much because, you know, when you've gone through something horrific in your life, you don't necessarily want to think about it. I I wonder if a lot of us who have worked through that and had to work every day like all of us in social work did, look back and, and have had to simply cover it up and get on with it lest we experience significant PTSD because it was scary to, you know me, I, you know, I tried to take things on my stride, but those early days of COVID were scary, man. They really were. I know. Uh, and it was a literal life and death matter, wasn't it? I, as you alluded to then, going out, 
having to strip off as soon as you came back that fear about would you bring COVID back in I mean I was living with my mum and dad at the time and both of them have underlying health conditions and I remember being terrified those times when I had to go out and visit people because I was sometimes Mm -hmm. still having to go into care homes and hospitals where they had COVID and thinking that well you were going to the lion's den Tilly you were going to the worst places you possibly could and and that guilt of would I bring it back and feeling like I had to kind of isolate myself when I got back home um, just in case I passed it on. All of these things, it's like a Pandora's box. I think we've just pushed those memories back inside that that folder in your mind where you just think, actually, that was a horrendous experience. It's almost different from some of the other traumatic memories that I'm sure many social workers and people out there have experienced in Mm. fact that it was so it was so universal because everyone was experiencing this that you almost feel like you can't have that response because everyone was going through it I mean you're not special by by experiencing those feelings but that's almost unfair because we all we all had trauma from it and just because we all experienced it certainly all of the workers in health and social care did our feelings around that PTSD are, are valid, and it it was a really scary time. And we had to work as well, Tilly. We didn't we didn't have an option. We didn't have an option. We had to work. You know, if if we'd have quit our jobs, and that's what happened. You know, some of my colleagues had to quit their jobs because they had people in their homes who were at significant risk, and they just had to give up their wages. There was no furlough for them. There was no, there was no support. Yes, there was for people who couldn't do the job themselves, but caring for a family member, particularly my friends who were agency social workers, they suffered significant financial hardship because they had to give up their jobs. So, all that being said, Tilly, all that being said, I'm going to read out some comments that were made by a Conservative MP a few days ago, and try your best not to. Swear or get so angry you'll be inaudible, okay, Tilly? Try and restrain yourself when you hear this. I will try. So, Conservative MP Flick Drummond, who represents the Meon Valley Parliamentary constituency in Hampshire, made a claim about social workers while speaking on BBC Radio 4's World at One show last week. She was actually joining the show to discuss planned teacher strikes because she used to be an Ofsted inspector. But for some reason, she turned the attention to social workers. And I'm going to read out her exact words, okay, Tilly? You ready for this? I'm I'm bracing myself. So Flick Drummond, Tory MP, said, I think COVID showed very clearly that social workers stayed at home and teachers had to go out and knock on doors to see where all the pupils were. Well, Tilly, well, Tilly, my friend, (laughs) did you stay at home during COVID? (laughs) No, I did not. I mean, I am spitting feathers at those comments. How dare she? How dare she? She has no idea. Firstly, social work is way more than just child protection. And it really frustrates me when this, then people don't realise that there are so many different fields of social work, 
all of them are yeah. equally as valid and important. We're all working with some form of people who are vulnerable. And the fact that she thinks that, that that's what social workers, even in child protection, did. I mean, she's just so wrong. That no, Social workers did not stay at home. Yes, we came out of office bases and we worked from home, but that did not stop us going out and doing visits and making sure that those who are most in need in society were as safe as we possibly could make them. And, and we went through just as much trauma than uh, as any of our colleagues in the health service. It's just, it, it, it beggars belief. It absolutely beggars belief that this MP can come out and say this, you know. I think COVID showed very clearly that social workers stayed at home. So she's very, she's very assertive in her position that COVID showed very clearly that social workers stayed at home. Now, I'm not going to pitch this as social workers versus teachers. I've got friends that are teachers. I work with teachers on a day-by-day basis. But teachers and social workers worked very closely together. In fact, I would go so far as to say that I have never had as good a working relationship with teachers as I have during COVID because we were in constant communication with one another regarding vulnerable pupils because the rules at the time were that the children who were allowed to go to school during lockdown were children who were classed by local authorities as vulnerable and children of key workers, which is why my children were able to attend school and nursery at the time. Now, of course, Tilly, we're going to get into a different argument here, and I'm not going to go into it too much. I'll just touch on it briefly. But the majority of those children who were classed as vulnerable by virtue of being on child protection plans, their parents chose not to send their children in, citing figures from coronavirus. Um, That wasn't necessarily unexpected, given a lot of those children would be subject to child protection plans due to neglect and concerns that parents weren't prioritising their needs. And there was a feeling, perhaps not shared by myself, but amongst many, that parents who weren't very good at getting their children to school anyway used that as an excuse. I don't necessarily lend myself to that so much because I do think more could have been done but the resources weren't there. The resources weren't there, but I would have liked to have seen resources there to be going and getting those kids to school. But that we didn't have the resources to go and check on children unless there was risk of significant harm on a daily basis. So sometimes, I'm not, believe me, I'm not siding with Flick Drummond here, Tilly. I'm just going to, I can see where there's a sliver of truth. There is a slither of truth to her argument that on some occasions, teachers may have been doing daily checks to try and get some children to school and that's maybe where a sliver of her argument comes from. Do you kind of see what I'm saying there, Teddy? I'm not excusing this woman, because you see how there could be certain isolated cases where a, a local teaching assistant might visit more often than a social worker. Do you see where I'm coming from? Yeah, of course. I think we all pitched in together. And if, exactly. if they could go out and see a vulnerable child, then they would, wouldn't they? I think that's that was out of the question. And yeah. as you said, we don't want to pitch this about teachers versus social workers. We all have a a role to play in supporting society. 
But her accusation is, of course, that social workers didn't visit at all. And that is, I'm about to, I, I was about to swear there, but that is BS. I'm going to say BS. That is <laughs> I think absolute, you're safe with BS. Yeah. That is absolute BS, Flick Drummond. It is disgusting. Social workers are let down by our government anyway. Social workers are blamed when something goes wrong and never credited where something goes right. We are held up and castigated in Parliament and in the papers when a parent or carer or a parent's partner kills a child. Social workers are blamed for that. Yet we are never, ever praised and heralded for all the thousands of children's lives we save on a yearly basis by removing those children from homes where they are at risk of significant harm and death. Yet, yet this MP has the temerity to suggest that we did not knock at doors and we stayed at home. Tilly, I had a colleague that I used to work with in Darlington Borough Council. He died. He died during the coronavirus pandemic. I know of many other social workers that I do not know personally across the world who lost their lives after having picked up this awful virus whilst knocking on the doors that Flick Drummond says we did not. I know social workers who worked themselves to the bone, worked themselves to the point of burnout, came home, passed on the virus to their family members because they were knocking on doors during COVID. Now, how many doors did Flick Drummond knock on Tilly? Not only that, but how many doors were opened on parties going ahead in Westminster, where our Prime Minister at the time and our Deputy Prime Minister at the time were investigated by police, found guilty and subject to fines because they broke lockdown rules. The very same lockdown rules that saw social workers such as me only able to visit my father in hospital on one occasion as he lay dying. My dad was in hospital for three weeks and I was only able to see him in person once the night before he died because of the same lockdown rules that Flick Drummond's bosses in Westminster absolutely ignored and went ahead and had birthday parties and cheese and wine parties. And yet she has the audacity to suggest that people like me, Tilly, people like you, and people like all of our listeners did not even knock at doors. I have never been surprised at how little our politicians know about social workers as a majority, and I've rarely been surprised at their ignorance and lack of respect. But this, Tilly, this has probably wound me up more than anything else because it was an unnecessary comment. She wasn't saying that for any political game. She wasn't criticising social workers or local authorities in order to push through an agenda or doing what David Cameron did with Gordon Brown and seizing upon the death of Peter Connolly in order to advance his political careers. Those are heinous Machiavellian things to do, but at least you can see there's a reason behind that. There's some sort of political game. Flick Drummond just said this out of pure ignorance and lack of respect for social workers. And worryingly, Tilly, worryingly, she was a former Ofsted inspector. I, words can't even do it justice of how awful it is. Um, yeah, she should know. She has no position um, or no. Oh, just she shouldn't be supporting no. her constituents at all. 
she shouldn't be representing people in politics if she's going to make comments like that. Just no, there is some no slight good news. There is some slight good news in this. Now, I'm going to level with you. I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of our Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. I, uh, I'm not going to go down that route too much, but as you can imagine, some of her policies potentially do not sit well with me. However, um, in the boundary changes that have been bought in via the Conservatives' own moves, Suella Braverman and Flick Drummond were pitted against each other last week. And unfortunately, Flick Drummond did lose the vote to Suella Braverman. So unless she can be parachuted into another seat, which is what she has done before, she's a bit of a political cockroach, is our Flick Drummond. She fears to survive and move on. She's you know, been trying to get to Parliament for two decades now. She succeeded in one seat, lost the election, then she was re-elected to another one. She spent time as a, a police commissioner, but stepped down from that role after a number of weeks given a poor work and relationships, but somehow, somehow this political cockroach keeps surviving. Let us hope for the sake of everybody, most importantly social workers, she does not survive this time, Tilly, and she scuttles off to wherever she came from and she can sit and spew her bile about social workers to people who she wants to, but is not emboldened by her position as an MP, because this kind of rhetoric spoken on a massive national radio show such as BBC4 is toxic and it's poisonous. And it makes you think, Tilly, if this is what our politicians dare to have the audacity to say about social workers on public radio, what on earth are they thinking about us or saying behind us behind closed doors? Well said, Vince. I couldn't say it better myself. I'm going to end on this one, Tilly. Um, three years. Three years of COVID now. Three years in a month we've lived with this awful virus. Do you think the efforts of social workers have been acknowledged for all that we did? They haven't been acknowledged by Flick Drummond, but in a wider sense, the NHS was held up, and, and rightly so, rightly so. Again, this isn't social workers versus the NHS. Everybody was out on the doorsteps on a Thursday, 8 o'clock, banging the pots and pans. Me included, Tilly. I banged my pan like the best of them. I got out and I took my pan and I banged it so hard. Like I, was, I, used to, I banged my pan so hard till I was red in the face every Thursday night, Tilly. I used to <laughs> bang my, oh, I gave my, I went out and I banged it proud. And I would look my neighbour square in the eye and I'd look at him, we'd look at each other and we'd just be sat there banging our pans together as hard as we could. <laughs> that sounds like an innuendo. <laughs> what, what, what is wrong with, what is wrong? What is wrong? What is wrong? Sorry. What is wrong with a, with, a, with a man going out and banging his pan while staring into the eyes and smiling at another man? I used to love banging my pan, Tilly. I sometimes still do it myself, and it's that for old times' sake, I'll sometimes go out and I'll bang my pan. Just the odd time, just to remember what it was like, those bang-panging days, those halcyon days of yore. I, I, I have no words. I mean, I just... Did you bang your pan? <laughs> Are you a, did you bang your pan? My <laughs> pan banger. Um, How often did you bang your pan during lockdown, Tilly? I, I, I didn't bang a pan. No, I clapped. I clapped. You clapped. Were you a window. clapper? I was a clapper. You were the oh pan banger. <laughs> this podcast has taken a turn for the worst. But, but Tilly, I think I think we're mistaken here. 
So I need to clarify what I'm talking about. I think you do. And I don't know if our international listeners would have would know what you're talking about. Oh, this is a good um, point, actually. This is a good point. <laughs> well, listeners. Well, listeners, there was a there was a movement uh, during the spring of 2020. And there was a massive groundswell of support for the NHS because, you know, look, I am going to build up what social workers did, but compared to what the NHS did, we we weren't anywhere near what they did. Look, I'm not criticising this, Tilly. You get what I'm saying there, don't you? You know, the NHS, they really were on the front line of fighting against this, weren't they? People in hospitals. Yeah, well, including social workers. Including social workers who were in hospitals. So we can include them in this. So there was a movement started in order to show appreciation to the NHS. And it was decided that every Thursday evening, it was 8 p.m., wasn't it? At 8 p.m. It was 8 p.m. every Thursday. I remember. Every Thursday evening at 8 p.m., um, citizens all over the United Kingdom were asked slash encouraged to go out onto your doorstep or into your garden and either clap or bang a pan. Um, what I used to do is I would go out and I would have, I've still got the spatula. I still, I still caress that spatula fondly. I still give it a tender stroke and think, remember all that banging we did, pal? All that banging we did back in 2020. Or, the, you know, the, the spatula ain't getting the love that it used to. It used to get a lot of banging. Stop making it dirty. Just, making, what is your problem? I'm talking about my <laughs> spatula, Tilly. You are, you, are, you are making me out to be monstrous here. I couldn't go to the pub. Couldn't see friends and family, but I could stay at home and bang my pan once a week. So that's what I did. We would go out, listeners, and you would stand on your doorstep or in your garden. You would either clap or you would have a pan, a kitchen pan or something to bang it with. And you would just give that thing a real good hard rattle for a minute as fast and hard as you could. And then you would just go back into your house as if nothing had happened. Yeah. I mean, it, it just dirty minds, dirty minds. Tell, I, don't sure I don't know why I don't. I don't know why you say this, Tilly. I you you are the one with the filthy mind, dear. I'm I am talking about something innocent and innocuous. I, British listeners, I bet you've all banged your pan back in those days in lockdown. I bet you were all. If you weren't bang panners, you were clappers. Yeah. And if you didn't, there was something wrong with you. If you weren't going out there and banging your pan, then what on earth were you spending your time doing instead? I don't know. I don't know. I've just got... Um, do you know what I'm going to do, Tilly? Yeah. I'm going to... I'm, once we've once we finished, wrapped up the show and I've edited it and I've sent it over, um, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go bang my pan and I'm going to send you a video of it. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to show you. Oh, I want. No. I, I Honestly, I want you to see my technique because I, I could make my pan bang with a loud, clear ring like a like a symbol i i had a symbol tone and I, it was uniform as well it was like dong 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 some people some people just shook it like but i was a dong 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 that's our ties to bang my pan back in 2020 and that's how it's done listeners that is how it's done. So if you want, I can maybe give out some, if listeners, if you want to drop me a message, I can uh, I can send you a link to my bang panning as well. I'll maybe do like a link to it and you can you can see what it was like. You know, you had you had to be there. And the second best thing to having been there is I'll send you, I'll send you a I'll send you a private video of me banging my pan. Just there you go, have a bit of that. And I bet if people go, oh yeah, I liked a bit of that too. I was in that. Do you know what? Do you know what, Tilly? I'm gonna go so far. I think it might even bring a tear to someone's eye. 
I think people will look back and they will think, oh, do you know what? Do you know what? Coronavirus is horrific, but I did like I did like that bang banging. Bit of nostalgia. Good. Bit of nostalgia <laughs> for people. On that lot, listeners, thank you ever so much. It's been, you know, it's been a difficult podcast tonight. Perhaps the end wasn't. We've taken a bit of a turn there. Thanks to Tilly. You know, thanks to Tilly's uh, you know, for some reason suggesting there was some sort of in you. I can't I can't personally see it. I might I might listen to this podcast back and then maybe I can see it. But for now, Tilly, I don't know what you're talking about. You need to you need to calm yourself down. You need to go bang a pan, okay? You need to get your whatever you're thinking about, you need to get that out of your system. Do you know what you need to do, Tilly? You need to go soothe yourself. I'll go soothe myself with you need some to go pan soothe yourself. banging. Yeah, that's exactly. There we go. There we go. Oh, right, there we go. Do you know we, we, we we've gone full circle? We opened this podcast by talking about Paul Gilbert and the compassionate mind blocking some time out. How about you block yourself a bit of time out this week for a bit of bang panning? Sure, why not? Pan banging. Pan, pan banging. Pan, do you know what? Actually, you've got to be <laughs> careful to there. Uh, you've got to be careful there because there's something that rhymes with pan bang that if I say that on the podcast, <laughs> we might be in trouble, okay? Then that, you might get a social working good referral. Yeah, that is a bit. Else. But just to be clear, everyone, I have been saying... I've been saying I enjoy a pan bang with friends and family. So that is pan bang. I am a pan banger. Nice. Okay. On that note, I think we should probably call it a day. And go back and go bang our pans. On that note, listeners, thank you ever so much. It's been a difficult podcast tonight, apart from the bizarre end there. Um, but it has been difficult. And you know, I'm gonna on a, on a serious note now. Um, like I said earlier, guys, um, I've lost friends and family, I've lost colleagues to COVID. It, it, it was an awful time. And, and the fact that we have been able to move on as well as we have, as me and Tilly talked about earlier, it's strange in a way in the fact that we have just got back to normal. But as well as it being strange, it, I think it's a sign of the resilience in our profession that so many of us could have lost family, friends, loved one, colleagues, but we kept going to work every day and we've gone back to work and we are still out there doing our best to keep people safe, despite the ravages that this virus had on us and continues to have on us with long COVID as well. So thank you ever so much for all of your sacrifices you've made. Thank you ever so much for all that you've done. And thank you for still getting up there, putting yourselves and your family at risk in order to make a better world for the people we serve. On that note, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thank you.